We've been working our way on Sunday mornings through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to turn there tonight as well, bringing our series in Matthew's Gospel over to this midweek service and perhaps to the next couple of Wednesday evenings to follow as well. And tonight we come to chapter 9. So turn with me this evening to the ninth chapter of Matthew's Gospel where we will read the first 36 verses. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city, and they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy, who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, And then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. While he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, for she was saying to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage, your faith has made you well. At once the woman was made well. When Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he said, Leave, for the girl has not died but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. This news spread throughout all that land. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. 
And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout all that land. As they were going out, a mute, demon-possessed man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed and were saying, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, He casts out demons by the ruler of demons. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Father, we pray um, that you continue to work in us as you have done in our lives, so many of us, by your word, so that we will be sheep with a shepherd. Come once again tonight and be our shepherd by your spirit, speaking to us about your son from your word. Be our shepherd tonight. Guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great titles by which we sometimes refer to our Lord is that of the great physician. Jesus, the great physician. And he is just that, is he not? He is a physician of the body, and he is also the great physician of the soul. And we see both, do we not, on marvelous display here in this ninth chapter of Matthew. Jesus is the great physician of the body, healing a paralytic here restoring a hemorrhaging woman, opening the eyes of the blind, loosing the tongue of the mute, and even raising the dead. And then this summary statement in verse 35, that Jesus was going throughout all the cities and villages, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Jesus is the great physician of the body. And as we see happening in this chapter, we too should come to him should cry to him, should reach out for the fringe of his cloak in our bodily needs. And we, as we also observe here in Matthew 9, we should come to Christ as well with the physical needs of those around us, too. But then notice in verse 35 that Jesus wasn't just going through all the cities and villages as a physician of the body, but also as a doctor for the soul. Verse 35, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And then notice also that Jesus actually calls himself a physician in verse 12, and that when he does so, when he speaks of himself as a physician in verse 12, it's clear there that the sick he intends to heal in that context are those who are spiritually unwell, the tax collectors and sinners with whom he has been spending time at Matthew's dinner party in the prior verses. They need a physician for their souls. They need a physician for their sin problems. They need a doctor who can treat the ailments of their hearts. And so do we all, don't we? The word sinners here on the lips of the Pharisees in verse 11 probably refers to 
the more overt kind of sinners of the day to irreligious people. But the word sinners in its true sense refers to us all, doesn't it? We're all sinners in need of a physician to perform his healing work in our hearts. For the heart, the human heart, in other words, the human soul, the innermost being of men and women and girls and boys, is desperately sick, says Jeremiah. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. The human heart is infested with the cancer of sin. Now that cancer sometimes presents itself in different ways and with different symptoms in the lives of different people, but we're all eaten up with it. There's none righteous, not even one. And therefore mankind and each individual member of mankind, you and I included, is in need of a physician, is in need of someone who can treat our souls in need of a doctor who can address the sickness of our hearts. And Christ, the God-man, is that great physician. In his deity, he has both the authority and the power to treat the sin sickness of the human heart. And in taking on humanity, he carried out all the necessary steps to make that healing happen. He was conceived in the womb of Mary. He was born in Bethlehem. He was tempted in all things as we are, and yet he kept himself from sin, and he bore our sins in his body on the cross, and he rose on the third day, all as part of his great work as the great physician of men's souls. So then, if you're taking notes tonight, whether mentally or manually, you can summarize what I've just been saying under the heading, Jesus, the great physician. And really, you could use that heading as a kind of summary for this entire passage. Jesus, the great physician. Jesus' healing is a theme that runs throughout this portion of Scripture. And I hope it's a theme that warms your heart and that woos you yourself into his clinic, as it were. When your body is ailing and especially as it relates to the sin sickness of your soul. Have you ever done that latter? Have you ever come to Jesus with the desperate sickness of your heart and asked him to deal with the cancer, both in its penalty and in its power? And if you have, are you continually coming to him in your struggle with sin's cancer, asking him to give you victory over it day by day by day by day? You may, and I hope you will. For just as Jesus came to heal Matthew and his shady friends here in chapter 9, he will hear you, poor sinner, if you will but come to him, reaching out for his blood-stained garment in faith and in repentance. That's the first theme tonight, and it's among the broadest as well in this passage. Jesus, the great physician. But then along the same lines, let's notice also Jesus' compassion, the compassion of the physician. Part of what you would hope for in a physician, I think, and part of what you might look for in a potential med student if you were on the board of admissions, say, at UC Med School, part of what you would look for in a doctor or a potential doctor would be a genuine concern for hurting people, right? 
You don't just want the guy who's in it for the money. You want the guy who really cares about hurting people, who has a genuine compassion for the suffering. And Jesus, the great physician, has this quality in spades, does he not? We spent some time on this same quality of Jesus' compassion when we looked together at chapter 8, but it's worth noticing once again here as we find it in chapter 9. It's worth noting Jesus' compassion both toward the physical needs of people and especially toward their spiritual needs. It's worth noting that with this paralytic man in verses 1 through 8. Listen to Jesus' kind, compassionate words to him in verse 2. Take courage, son. Take courage, son. Here's this man being hauled in on a mat by his friends, and Jesus looks at him and speaks compassionately to him. Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. Compassion. And then there's his compassion as well on Matthew and his 'er ne'er-do-well friends in verses 9 through 13. The Pharisees seem to have seen these people as scum, but Jesus sees them as sick and in need of his help. Now, yes, their sin sickness, like our own, was of their own doing. And no, Jesus is not soft-pedaling the seriousness of sin by hanging with these people, but he is showing compassion by hanging with them. He's showing compassion here, even towards people who, like us, have made their own sick beds. We also see his compassion in verses 18 and following on this poor, bereaved father and on his dead little girl. Jesus got up and began to follow him to the deathbed. We see Christ's compassion also on this woman in verses 20 through 22, who's been sitting in her own blood for 12 years. Listen to his tender words to her, similar to what he said to the paralytic here in verse 22. Daughter, take courage. Take courage. Your faith has made you well. And then in verses 27 and following, two blind men ask Jesus for mercy. And he grants them mercy. He shows them compassion. And he shows compassion, soul, and body toward this poor, demon-possessed mute as well. Compassion on his body, loosing his tongue. Compassion on his soul, sending away the demon. And this season of ministry in Galilee is summed up here in verse 36 with the words, Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. All these different crowds that came to Jesus, all these different people he saw, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. Jesus does not look upon the suffering after the manner of the religious muckety-mucks in his famous story, crossing over to the far side of the street in order not to have to become entangled with someone's problems. Jesus feels compassion on people when he sees them bleeding on the side of the road or suffering in these various ways. And nor does Jesus look upon the 'er ne'er-do-wells, the sinners, after the manner of the Pharisees here in verse 11. He has compassion 
on the sinners. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. And there's both encouragement and example here in the compassion of Jesus. Encouragement in that in your distress, in your dispiritedness, in your disheveledness, and even in your disobedience, if you belong to Christ, or if you will come to belong to him, you have a compassionate Savior who shows mercy on people such as ourselves. And this compassion is not only an encouragement, but it's an example. Whom ought I to imitate? The Pharisees in verse 11, who couldn't fathom having supper with a sinner? The priest and the Levite in Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan who went out of their way to avoid the troubled? Or should I imitate Jesus, who, seeing the people, felt compassion for them? Because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus, the great physician. Jesus, compassion. And then thirdly, let's notice Jesus' authority and power. His authority and power here in this section. And here we just notice very simply that Jesus doesn't just feel compassion, verse 36. And he doesn't just speak compassionately in verse 2 and in verse 22, but that he also has the authority and power to act on his compassion. He has the authority to forgive sins, verse 6, and he demonstrates that authority by exercising his power to raise the paralytic. He also has the power to heal the hemorrhaging woman, to raise the dead, to open blind eyes, to banish a demon, and to loose the tongue that apparently that demon had bound. And so it's not just that Jesus has compassion, important as that is in a physician, but that he also has the ability to heal, to make whole, to restore. That's what we all want and need from our doctors, is it not? Yes, we want him to feel compassion for us. Yes, we want her to feel something toward us in our difficulty. But also, we want him or her, we want our doctor to actually be able to do something to help us, right? And Jesus can certainly do that, both in terms of our bodies and in terms of our souls. Witness Matthew in verses 9 and following. Matthew was a tax collector, and tax collectors didn't have a very good reputation. Tax collectors were often cheats. And not only is Matthew a tax collector, but his friends, in verses 10 and 11, the people whom he has invited to his dinner party, and Luke tells us that the party was at Matthew's house, Matthew's friends, in verses 10 and 11, were apparently not the most reputable people tax collectors, and sinners. And so if you can picture it, dinner at Matthew's house was probably a lot less like the Sunday school Christmas party than it was like a cookout at the home of your rough-around-the-edges neighbor down the street. Matthew was probably not an exemplary character when Jesus encountered him here in chapter 9. And yet, who wrote this book? that we've been studying in recent weeks. 
Who provided us with the fullest record of Jesus' most famous sermon, the most famous sermon that ever was preached, the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew. Matthew, though he was apparently a rough-around-the-edges character when we encounter him in chapter 9, spent the remainder of his life serving the Lord after he met Jesus. And he's left us one of the most beloved books in all the Bible. Why? Because Jesus has authority and power to heal the sin-sick soul. He has compassion and he has authority and power to make good on that compassion. And he can heal your sin-sick soul as well. And he has the power and the authority to save that rough-around-the-edges guy down the street. And he has the power and the authority to successfully treat the soul of that loose woman at work. And he has the power and the authority to perform the necessary surgery on your prodigal son or daughter. And he has the power and the authority to do the necessary work, which is no less needed and no less serious in the souls of our more compliant but still unconverted children, in the hearts of the religious but unregenerate churchgoers in this land, in the lives of the decent but still lost pagans in our neighborhoods and families and workplaces and schools. Jesus and Jesus alone has authority and power to save. And he will. For all who run to him in repentance and faith, he will. So run to him and pray for and plead with the lost souls around you that they would run to him, repenting of their sin and believing on him as the great and the only physician of their souls. So we've thought about Jesus, the great physician. We've thought about his compassion. We've thought about his authority and power as a physician. And then I also want to notice here Jesus' priorities in this passage. Jesus' priorities. And we'll consider two priorities of Jesus here in Matthew 9. The first is simply that when Jesus, or excuse me, while Jesus is a physician, both of the body and the soul, both the body and the soul, Matthew 9 contains a couple of hints. It seems to me that Jesus' priority as a physician is on the treatment of the soul even more so than on the treatment of the body. Now, we would probably say that anyway, that Jesus' priority is on the treatment of the soul rather than the body, based on what we know about the whole Bible. But I think we may have a couple of hints, even in this very chapter, as to this priority in Jesus' practice as the great physician. Priority of healing the soul even more so than the body. One potential hint is that when this man is brought to Jesus in verse 2, this man who obviously needs a physician for his body, this man who is lying on a stretcher, unable to move his limbs, when a man like this is brought to Jesus, it's interesting to note that Jesus' first words to him are not, take courage, son, your legs are restored, but take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't begin by saying to the man, get up and walk. He begins by saying, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, it could be that the trouble with the man's legs or his back or whatever it may have been, it could be that his paralysis was connected to some specific sin in his life so that the request of these friends who brought him to Jesus was not just for the healing of his body but for the restoration of his soul as well. Possibly so. 
But either way, he's got this great bodily need, and Jesus deals first with his soul. And I think that may be suggestive of Jesus' overall priority in his work as the great physician. Jesus has compassion on man's physical need, no doubt. But he first here, in this case, addresses his spiritual need. And when he does address the physical need of this paralytic, he makes it clear that his reason for doing so is to demonstrate that he also has authority over the spiritual concerns, that he has authority to forgive sins. Did you note that? The Pharisees here in these first few verses, they thought Jesus was just making big claims here. The Pharisees thought Jesus was just saying to this man, your sins are forgiven. And that would be blasphemy, as they put it in verse 3, for a mere man to claim to be able to do something that only God has the authority to do. And so Jesus, aware of what they're thinking in verse 4, and aware that it is in fact easier to say your sins are forgiven than it is to say get up and walk, because the effectiveness of the words get up and walk can be immediately verified, right? Jesus, knowing that is the case, causes this man to get up and walk in order to prove that he is God, and thus that he does have the authority to forgive sins. And the point I'm making here is that this miraculous healing of the body is performed here in Matthew 9 to demonstrate Jesus' authority to deal with the matters of the soul. This miraculous healing of the paralytic's body is to prove something about Jesus' ability to heal the soul. So that in this one case, at least, the forgiveness of sins seems to be the great priority with the healing of the body taking a secondary place. And though there are no similar conversations about the healing of the body demonstrating the authority of Jesus to forgive sins, though there are no similar conversations recorded in connection with the other bodily hearings healings, I should say, here in Matthew 9, I think it's safe to say the paradigm is probably the same. Jesus heals bodies, yes, simply on one level because he's compassionate toward mankind in our physical suffering. But Jesus also heals bodies in order to demonstrate his ability to heal and save and restore the soul, to forgive sins, and to deal also with the power of sin in our lives. In this life, the restoration of souls is paramount. Now, praise God, in the age to come, both soul and body will be made completely whole. But in his earthly ministry and in his work among his people today, in this age, it seems to me that we have a hint here in verses 2 and following of Jesus' prioritization of the healing of the soul by his dealing with our sins. And I think this may also be hinted at when in verse 35, Matthew summarizes Jesus' ministry in this period by mentioning his teaching and preaching first and then his healing ministry at the end of the sentence. Did you notice that order in verse 35? Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Did you notice the order? Matthew, as he summarizes here, mentions the teaching and the proclaiming first. 
And then he mentions the healing. Second, Jesus came first of all to be a physician of souls, to teach, to preach, to forgive, as we saw at the first part of the chapter. None of that to the exclusion of his compassion on our bodily needs, but in priority above it, and with the healing of the body as a demonstration of his authority to deal with the issue of our sin sickness. So we're thinking about Jesus' priorities here, and I told you we consider two of them. We've dealt with Jesus' priority of treating the soul even more importantly than the body. But then let's also notice briefly how Jesus places a priority in verses 9 through 13 on treatment of the sick rather than the healthy, on treatment of sinners rather than the righteous. Not that there actually are any spiritually healthy people or any truly righteous people apart from Christ, but there are people like the Pharisees in verse 11 who think that they're healthy, who think that they're righteous, And in his ministry, Jesus gave priority, he tells us here, not to those people who surely didn't think they needed his help anyway, but to the obviously sick. Notice it there in verse 12. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Verse 13, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus didn't come to hobnob with the self-righteous, but to heal the unrighteous. And then, even when we think about those who actually are righteous, because they've come to trust Christ, and have therefore been declared righteous in justification, and they are becoming more righteous in their day-to-day living in sanctification, even when we think about those people, who are really, truly righteous in Christ, when we think about Christ's sheep, in other words, his church, even then, we can look over in Matthew 18 and hear Jesus speaking about leaving the 99 and going in search of the wayward one. So that there's clearly this priority in the heart of Jesus for seeking that which is lost, for seeking that which is sick. Not that he does not also in reality give all the attention that's needed to the other 99 sheep who are healthy and doing relatively well, but he has a passion for seeking and saving that which is lost, for doctoring that which is sick. Let's ask him to grant us that passion, to help us adopt this priority so that we won't simply huddle together in the sheep pen but be out searching for the lost sheep so that we won't, as Christ's physician assistants and nurses, won't, that we won't simply huddle together in the back rooms of the clinic, as it were, but get out into the waiting room where the sick folks are and roll up our sleeves for the Lord's work. And certainly so that we won't be like the Pharisees who thought that they actually were righteous and that Jesus had just hobnob with them all the time and forget about all these sinful people. So we've thought about Jesus, the great physician. We've thought about his compassion, his authority and power, his priorities. And I have three other themes to notice here in Matthew 9, so I'll try to move quickly. Notice with me, fifthly, Jesus' response to faith in this chapter. Jesus' response to faith. Did you notice the emphasis here in Matthew 9 on the importance of faith in the healing that Jesus performs? Verse 2 
They brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Verses 20 through 22, And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage, your faith has made you well. Verses 27 through 29. And Jesus, as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. Faith is not mentioned by name in every instance of healing here in Matthew 9, although in the other cases it's probably implied, it seems to me. But enough attention is specifically drawn to faith here and to Jesus' healing in response to faith to certify this as a theme in this passage. Jesus loves to perform his healing work, body and soul, in response to our faith in response to our trusting him for the healing. Now certainly he can heal the body even when we don't believe. But he loves to heal the body in response to our belief. And of course, if there's to be healing for our souls and resurrection for our bodies in the great day, then faith is absolutely indispensable. No one was ever saved saved in their soul, saved spiritually, saved eternally. No one was ever saved and no one will ever be saved apart from faith, apart from trust in God's Messiah, in the seed of the woman, in the seed of Abraham, in the son of David, in the son of man, in the suffering servant, faith in Jesus of Nazareth. In the Old Testament, people were saved by looking forward to the coming Messiah, even though they didn't yet know him by name. And since that Messiah has come, we're still saved by faith. In this very same Messiah, whose name and whose story we now know with much greater clarity and detail. But it's the same Messiah, and it's only by faith in this same Messiah that anyone has ever been or ever will be saved from their sins. And so I just call your attention in this passage to how the great physician heals in response to faith in response to trust in himself. Again, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has made you well. It shall be done to you according to your faith. May it be that Jesus would have occasion to speak such words to you and to me. Do you trust him? you really believe in his power to heal, to restore, to forgive, to save? Ask him to do it, and it shall be done to you according to your faith. Now, sixthly, briefly, we need to take notice here also of Jesus' critics. Jesus' critics, they keep popping up, don't they? Some people have faith in Jesus here in Matthew 9. Some people marvel at Jesus. You see that in verses 8 and 33. But Jesus also has his critics in this chapter, doesn't he? Jesus pronounces the paralytic's sins 
forgiven. And verse 3, some of the scribes said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. Jesus dines with Matthew's lost friends. And verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? Jesus pronounces this little girl not dead but asleep, and the people gathered in the room, verse 24, began laughing at him. Jesus casts out a demon, but the Pharisees were saying, verse 34, he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. And what I want to say here is simply this, no matter how great a physician you and I know Jesus to be, and no matter how great a physician he is, He's always going to have his critics in this life. There are always going to be people who, for one reason or another, just won't give him his due, just won't recognize his goodness and his power. And while I do not say that we should be comfortable with that fact, the fact is prevalent enough in this chapter and in this gospel and in this New Testament, and in our own day, that we shouldn't be surprised or even, I think, alarmed to find some people in our world and maybe in our own spheres of influence and relationships who just don't have any respect for our King. He was despised and forsaken of men in his earthly ministry, and he will be so today. And so let us seek to woo the despisers to him, But let us not be surprised or alarmed by the fact that they actually exist. So we've thought tonight about Jesus, the great physician. We've thought about his compassion, his authority and power, his priorities, his response to faith, his critics. And then finally, let us notice in the seventh and last place tonight, Jesus' joy. Jesus' joy. And by referring to Jesus' joy, I'm thinking about and speaking about the joy that he brings to his people and not directly about his own joy, although the two are obviously related. But we're thinking now about the joy of Jesus, the joy that he brings to his people. And I'm drawing this point from verses 14 and following, where Jesus is asked why in contrast to the Pharisees and in contrast to the disciples of John, why his disciples do not fast. And how does he answer that question? Well, he answers by comparing the current state of affairs to a wedding. He answers the question by calling himself a groom and his disciples, his groomsmen, and by saying, in essence, in verse 15, you don't fast at a wedding, do you? The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? A wedding, when the groom is together with all of his best friends, is not the time for fasting. The time leading up to the wedding where they're getting ready for that day is not the time of fasting. It's a time for joy. It's a time for gladness. It's a time of feasting, actually. Now, those same groomsmen might fast someday, verse 15b, when they stand beside the grave of this good friend. But they don't fast in the days leading up to the wedding. To do so, to fast... When you ought to be feasting, 
would be akin, Jesus goes on to say in the next two verses, to patching an old garment with a new piece of cloth or to filling an old wineskin with new wine. The old garment, already shrunken in the laundry cycle, will tear if you attach an unshrunk piece of cloth to it. Because the unshrunk cloth will now shrink when the garment goes back through the laundry, and it will tear away from the already shrunken garment to which you attached it. They don't go together. And the old wineskin, which is stretched already nearly to the max, will burst when the new wine is poured into it and begins to expand. Some things, in other words, while they are fine in their own spheres, while they work together fine in their own spheres, just don't mesh together. New patches don't work on an old coat. New wine doesn't fit in an old skin. And in the same way, the joy of the bridegroom's presence doesn't mesh with this practice of fasting that Jesus is being asked about. Because the joy of being with the bridegroom will inevitably burst through all attempts at fasting and mourning. The bridegroom is with us. Now again, there would be a time for Jesus' disciples to fast. But now in Matthew 9 is not that time. Now in Matthew 9 is a time of rejoicing. Now is a time of preparation for the wedding. Now is a season of joy because the bridegroom is among his people. And he has been going throughout the waiting rooms of Galilee, as it were, healing bodies and souls left and right. And the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? And I bring this portion of Matthew 9 into its modern application by saying that there are times to be mourning in the Christian life, for sure. There are times for fasting and for grief in the Christian life. And yet, as in Matthew 9, there are plenty of times as well, if our eyes and hearts are in the right place, there are plenty of seasons in the Christian life when our joy in the bridegroom ought to be such that to fast and indeed to do anything but feast would be as out of place as trying to contain new wine in an old wineskin. The bridegroom, to put it simply, brings joy that will burst through the grief and the fasting. You don't ever go to a wedding, do you, and see any of the groomsmen off to one side in the corner at the rehearsal dinner or at the reception quietly picking away at bread and water. And if you did see that, you would go over there and say, what's wrong with you, boy? Get over here and eat some of this cake. It would be totally out of place, right? Because a wedding and the joy of the groom means that it's time to rejoice and to feast. Nor, to to bring it to our current or almost current season of the year, nor do you hear hear of people fasting at Christmas. Because Christmas is a celebration of the bridegroom coming among us. And I simply say to you that while not every season of the Christian life is a season for feasting, the fact that Christ is the bridegroom and that he has come among us and that he continues to walk among the lampstand of his churches means that there ought to be joy 
in those churches. There ought to be gladness among the covenant people of God. And as I say, there is gladness and there will be gladness if our eyes and hearts are in the right place. If our eyes and hearts are on the bridegroom. If our eyes and hearts are on the great physician.